Good morning. It's Thursday, the 5th of October, and this is Govind Rajathiraj coming to you from Mumbai, India's financial capital. Our top stories and themes for the day. Global markets are in turmoil as interest rates head higher. Oil prices, however, begin to fall. Low-income real estate buyers drop off the market as interest rates and inflation bite. Why are more directors quitting or rather fleeing from the boards of startups? The most spirited stock in the Indian stock markets. Explanation coming up. This is a core report with Govindraj Atiraj. The markets in turmoil. Remember we said yesterday how rising treasury yields are at a 16 year high in the United States and they in turn were hitting prices of commodities, currencies and stocks ranging from gold and silver at 7 month lows to currencies at record lows to stocks at lows. The Sensex just to recount and recap ended at 65226 down 286 points while the Nifty 50 closed at 19436 falling 93 points yesterday. Like many other days there were sharp swings during the trading day. Now what's happening elsewhere? The yield on the 30 year US Treasury note briefly breached 5% while the 10 year equivalent hovered around 4.8%, its highest since August 2007 in the United States. Germany's 10 year Bund yield briefly touched 3% for the first time in 12 years, the Wall Street Journal reported. Now the rapid rise in rates in the past few weeks is increasingly spilling over into other financial markets and denting the attraction of riskier assets like stocks. The S&P 500 closed Tuesday at its lowest level since early June after falling about 1.4%. So in all this, the good news is that oil prices have retreated from their $100 a barrel chase. West Texas Intermediate crude fell near $87 a barrel to the lowest since September 11, and deteriorating sentiment across markets over the last few days. spurred by a higher for longer outlook for global interest rates has stopped the oil price rally in its tracks according to bloomberg oil prices continue to fall wednesday even as opec plus countries like saudi arabia and russia committed once again to continue their additional curbs until december oil has risen since mid june ever since saudi arabia and russia supply cuts squeezed the market In India Minister of Petroleum and Natural Gas Hardeep Singh Puri said that rising crude oil prices could create organized chaos and devastation in several parts of the world. He told Bloomberg TV yesterday that increasing crude prices have resulted in some 100 million people around the world being taken into abject poverty in just the last 18 months. According to him crude oil prices of around $80 per barrel or slightly less than that would be a convenient price range for countries. It's in the interest of all countries including oil producing and consuming to have a healthy discussion on what constitutes a reasonable price band he said. So, will oil prices now that they are on a downward trajectory or pause go into that $80 range? I don't know of course, but since we buy a lot of oil from Russia and they in turn are responsible albeit partly for the high prices right now, then we are surely in a good position to ask them. From oil to gas The government has increased cooking gas subsidy from 200 rupees to 300 rupees per cylinder paid to poor women who got a cooking gas connection under the Pradhan Mantri Ujjwala Yojana. This is the second time it has increased the subsidy in a month, it being the government of India, in a move that appears to be keeping rising inflation in mind and of course the slightly more medium term elections. 
the beneficiaries of the Pradhan Mantri Ujwala Yojana will get a subsidy of 300 rupees per cylinder, a cabinet minister of the government said yesterday. So the Ujwala beneficiaries currently pay 703 rupees per 14.2 kilogram cylinder as against the market price of 903. After this decision, they will pay 603. The government had announced a limited subsidy in March as well. Now there are 310 million LPG gas consumers in India. Fleeing directors. You may have heard of a company called Dunzo, possibly off late because of the fact that it's in trouble and Reliance Industries owns a 26% stake in it or in that opposite order. Dunzo is in what is known as quick e-commerce. Some five board members of this company have resigned and most have left the company, The Economic Times is reporting. The names of the individuals are not relevant here, but they include the Group Chief of Business Operations at Reliance Retail, Finance Head at Reliance Retail, who've left the Dunzo board. In August, one director representing an investor called Lightrock and owning about 8.6% of the company left the ET-quoted another organization called Traxon, which tracks these things, I would imagine. And then two co-founders, including one co-founder who is also chief technology officer, left the board. Only one of them continues in the company but has left the board. Their exits would have been more newsworthy were it not for the fact that they come on the heels of three similar and spectacular exits by three investor directors on the board of Baiju, who resigned the board in June in what appeared to be out of utter frustration and also thus kissed some $5 billion of their, or rather their investors' money, goodbye. Those three directors were representing Peak XV or Peak 15, earlier called Sequoia Capital India, whose meltdown is a separate story, Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and Process, all names of venture funds. And not to be left far behind, the auditor Deloitte, Haskin and Sales also resigned. So what gives? Why would directors walk away from a situation they are there to precisely fix or rescue or save whatever is left of it? Isn't that why they became directors in the first place, to protect their investments or to grow them? Obviously, there are other delicate matters at stake, like the prospect of going to jail. In the case of Baiju, there is at least one enforcement directed investigation on, which also saw raids on the company's offices in April, involving alleged diversion of funds overseas. The enforcement director charged that Baiju's received some 28,000 crores of foreign direct investment between 2011 and 23. It then said that the company remitted or sent out some 9,700 crores to various foreign jurisdictions during the period in the name of overseas direct investment. I'm sure you get the subtext of this allegation. But let's return to fleeing directors. The likely situation is that all directors of all these companies are fearing the possibility of criminal breach of some sort under Indian laws, if not elsewhere. The least that can happen is that you will get sent back from the airport if you are planning a little trip outside for business or pleasure, or back home in some cases. The question of course is, does it help? Would you be absolved of all blame merely by submitting a resignation letter? Despite of course, and with some benefit of doubt, you not having known what was really going on in the company, which may have been the case in Baiju. How someone could not know of course is another question for another day. So I reached out to Sriram Subramanian, founder of InGovern Research Services, an institutional investor advisory company based out of Bangalore who tracks board governance issues closely. And I began by asking him why this was happening and why directors were fleeing en masse, as it were. So there is a lot of stress in these startups where the VCs or the investor directors are resigning. So Baiju's Bid, Danzo or any other company for that matter where the investor directors are resigning. 
that means that it has reached a point of no return. One. Two is, there is obviously a breakdown of relationships between the investors and the founders, or at least a breakdown of the sense of direction in which they would like to take the company in. So to that extent, I think, especially in the case of Baiju, they could have actually ejected Baiju and the investor director should have taken control of the company. And the ongoing management should have been by the board led by the investor directors. So I would think the reason why that leave companies. Have you seen it happen in other companies as well, which may not be so much in the limelight, Sriram? Yeah, obviously, see, there have been many companies that have closed shop in the past, be it Simply Learn, which was again a funded Airbnb equivalent in Chennai, which was there. So lots of even OYO has had a change in directors over a number of years. So I would think uh, these are manifestations of stress. Okay. Now, the directors who are resigning, I mean, one reason, obviously, I mean, if you look at Baiju's or maybe a couple of other companies, it seems to time with, let's say, various actions by economic enforcement agencies, like the enforcement directorate, more specifically in the case of Baiju. So it also appears that the directors are getting out because they feel that they could be liable for some procedural or some other kind of economic offense action. So my question is really, is that the case? It seems to be the case, but is it the case from your point of view? And two, how does it help? No, obviously, uh, the non-compliances to look out for is non-payment of TDS, non-payment of GST and filing returns and non this one of PF and ESI and labor, this one, right? So these are the three dimensions of amounts that are due to the government and not being paid. At the other end, there are obviously operational creditors. You may not be paying vendors, etc. And that could also lead to cases against you, especially if there's a check bounce case, the directors are held up in the courts and the like. So from that perspective, director may want to not be associated with the company when going is downhill and these liabilities start, or at least there is a pain in attending court cases, etc. So from that perspective, I would think uh, this one to leave the company. But again, going by some of these cases, you talked about Provident Fund, you talked about statutory payments, GST and TDS and so on. Is a director who is no longer on the board, no longer liable as well? Or is he or he liable for the actions that happened at the time that they were on the board? No, they are not liable per se from a personal perspective as long as they are complicit to fraud in that sense. But there is a pain value of attending court cases, dealing with a lot of hassles. Once you are non-compliant, then that becomes a problem. Especially in a checkpoints case, directors need to appear in court uh, time and again, and uh, that becomes a problem. And that's even independent directors? Uh, that's even independent directors, and that is a problem, yes. So you're saying apart from checkbounds, on the other kinds of non-compliance areas, the directors are not really liable? They are not liable for the amount per se, but there could be obviously notices to the directors from the statutory authorities. One, two is there could be demands or summons to appear before some of these statutory authorities. So these are the reasons why it becomes painful rather than it's not a monetary thing. In fact, many of these directors would rather pay a fine and get away than endure the pain, I would think. Right. So to come back to the first point, Sriram, you were saying that this usually is a sign of the fact that it's a point of no return. Yes, say point of no return. Or the investors have lost confidence and trust 
in the management to turn around the fortunes of the company. So if at all turnaround happens, that's a future thing. But at least at this point, when the decision was taken, the investors have lost the confidence of the management and are just leaving the company to the winds. Right. Sriram, thank you so much for joining me. Okay, thank you. India's lower income segment is leaving the housing market. Rising interest rates and of course inflation are forcing people out of the lower end housing segments. Worse, buyers in this segment are apparently unable to put down the base contribution to total cost, which could be, let's say, up to 20% or 10 lakh rupees of a 50 lakh rupee house. The headline, of course, at least for now, is a little different. Real estate consulting firm Knight Frank India has said that quarterly sales for residential units are at a six-year high, going by total numbers in the leading eight residential markets in India. In the third quarter, that's July to September 23, these markets saw a surge in demand with sales of about 82,000 residential units or a 12% growth year-on-year. And in volume terms, this was apparently a six-year high. Now, here is where things diverge a little bit. The mid and the high-end category of residential properties saw a further rise in sales momentum in the third quarter or the last quarter. Properties costing over 1 crore rupees saw a 39% increase. The mid-segment of 50 lakh to 1 crore rupees saw a 14% increase year-on-year to this quarter. But the affordable segment or homes less than 50 lakh rupees continued to decline and at this point is reporting a year-on-year decline of 10% in the number of units sold. In contrast to 2018, numbers stand out even more or look stark. Total sales achieved in the first nine months of the year now stands at about 239,000 units, which is about 28% over 2018, while the under 50 lakh category saw a 26% decline in absolute terms compared to 2018. However, in the 1 crore plus category, there was a 157% increase over 2018. And thus, to reiterate, for the first time, sales in the high-end segment have now overtaken sales in the affordable segment. Hyderabad, by the way, is seeing the most action in this real estate space as far as residential go. As an occasional visitor, including last month, I can testify that the quality of road and base infrastructure in Hyderabad does seem better than most other cities, including Mumbai for sure. So if you find something to do there, that's Hyderabad, it's a great place to go. I may not, of course. To understand a little more on the latest numbers, I spoke with Vivek Rati, Director of Research at Knight Frank India, and I began by asking him what was standing out in these numbers apart from the six-month sales high. So the housing momentum in the country has gathered steam over the last three years after we came out of pandemic experience. Initially, low property prices and multi-decade low mortgage rates were the key reasons. As we move ahead in the trajectory, housing loan interest rates have gone up significantly over the last 15-16 months. House prices have also gone up. But despite all of this, housing sales momentum has continued. Market scales are higher in Q3-2023 than it was over the last six years. And which is phenomenal considering some of the global markets have also given signals of weakening demand in the housing segment. You also inquired about what's happening off the charts in terms of the sub-segments, right? And that is where we see a clearly different picture because at the overall level, we take note of a 12% growth in Q3, 2023 residential sales. But 
in terms of the sub constituents, the lower segment or the affordable segment is where the cracks were visible. It degrew in this period almost 10%, and the limelight was taken over by mid and premium segments, which continued to grow. The premium segment had a superlative growth of 39%. So generally, you would expect as for the country of ours, for the macro and the demography, that the lower segment of the market will be the heavy lifter. But unfortunately, the affordable housing segment has shrunk. And for the first time, it's the lowest segment compared to even the premium segment, which is one more than one crore segment. And that is something which is cause of concern. And I'm sure stakeholders, including the government and the industry will take note of it. So you're saying it's a cause of concern because either inflation or there are some other reasons which are constraining people at the lower income levels from buying homes? So when we look at the entire spectrum of consumers in the mid-segment, lower segments and higher segments, all of the variables which is to do with the unknown interest rates, property prices, income levels have a varied impact, right? And with the increase in mortgage rates, what happened essentially on this segment is the need for a higher down payment became a pressure point. So when it comes to a mid and premium segment consumer, they had other resources to tap into to fulfill the need for a higher contribution from their side to fund their property purchase decision. But when it came to the lower segment, they did not have anything to their rescue, right? And which has come as one big challenge from the demand side and Overall, if you see the mortgage rates, it kind of shrinks affordability by close to 15-16% across consumer segments. But like I said, the other segments, the mid and premium segment consumers have an ability to tap into other resources to fulfill this, whereas the lower segment does not have. When you say lower, it's below 50 lakhs, right? Yeah. So different agencies have a different way of looking at it. RBI looks at the priority sector under 35 lakhs. Some of the government schemes took at 45 lakhs. We've kind of classified it in less than 50 uh, lakh segment. Right. So I'm assuming that supply is not a problem or supply is also slowing down in response to this. Yeah. So interestingly, supply has also shrunk. And why that has shrunk is because presumably so every producer or business developer would look to ensure all of the efforts, investments go into the direction where the demand activity is very strong. And mid and premium segment sales velocity has ramped up significantly over the last three years with the consumer desire for larger and better homes. As a result, the supply also shrank in this segment. Having said so, the first set of challenge came from the demand side when the income levels were disrupted for this segment of consumers during the peak pandemic period. And then the increase in mortgage rates and property prices which created that challenge. So as we go ahead, First, the demand side measures followed by the supply side measures will be warranted to really lift this segment. Right. Last question, Vivek, for today at least. What Hyderabad seems to be really rocking it. What's driving the market there? So, particularly in case of Hyderabad, since the last five, six years is one market which has hold on on volumes and prices did not get disturbed much because a lot of things started to come in place, whether it was the state formation, which kind of provided clarity to all stakeholders, including corporates to take their bets, and also the level of infrastructure, which has developed in the city, which has allowed supply of affordable real estate. And certainly, this is one of the markets where economic momentum is improved. 
So both in case of residential as well as commercial segment, we have seen a strong market volume in case of Hyderabad. In the last three, four years, we've also seen period, some few quarters where you know Hyderabad took on the mantle from Bangalore, even while it was temporarily Bangalore, while Bangalore continues to be numero uno on demand volumes. But Hyderabad has clearly come as a very strong contender and that is what is reflecting on its commercial space take up this quarter, which is greater than Bangalore. Vivek, thank you so much for joining me. Sure, thanks. Pleasure. And luxury cars are selling away. While one segment of India finds it difficult to create assets, like we just spoke, others are splurging, so to speak. German luxury car maker Audi India reported an 88% growth in retail sales during the first nine months of this calendar year, with sales reaching about 5,500 units, thanks mostly to its SUV lineup. This figure has already surpassed the entire 2022 sales by about 1,300 units. Balbir Singh Dillon, head of Audi India in a report in Business Standards, said that he anticipated sustained demand in the upcoming festive season as well, especially for their bestsellers like the A and Q series. And he also said that he was optimistic on the festive season demand for its electric range, which include EV cars like the Audi e-tron GT and the Audi RS e-tron GT. And spirits are high elsewhere too. In one of those rare linkages between stock markets and product success, and more so in this case of a whiskey brand, shares of distillery company Piccadilly Agro Industries hit the upper circuit on October 4th, and that's again, by the way, with the stock surging another 20%. Now, this was, interestingly enough, because Single Malt Indri's Diwali Collectors Edition 2023, an Indian whiskey made by the company, won the Best in Show Double Gold title at the 2023 Whiskies of the World Awards, according to Bloomberg. The stock is now up 292% in 2023 with that push from the result of that annual US-based competition. India, by the way, is the world's largest whiskey market at about $18 billion a year, according to data from Statista, also quoted by Bloomberg. It's an exciting time for India, and Indian whiskies are not far behind as we are playing a part in the India story, Siddharth Sharma, founder of Piccadilly Distilleries, said in a statement. The Whiskies of the World Award is one of the largest whiskey tasting competitions in the world. Over a hundred varieties of whiskey from all over the world are judged, which is held annually. The Indri brand that I refer to was launched in 2021, so it's only a two-year brand from the Piccadilly Distilleries, which is based in Haryana. The company was incorporated in 1994 and its main business is the sugar and distillery segments. It also has a sugar mill, also in Haryana, which houses the sugar production unit, distillery unit and a malt plant. Well, on that spirited note, that's it from me for today. Do log into our website, www.thecore.in. Subscribe to our newsletter. Check out our podcast frequently, of course. And do send in your feedback and let us know what you'd like to hear on govindraj at thecore.in. Have a great day. This was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter at www.thecore.in. That is www.thecore.in. Or follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter and Facebook as well. Now, we would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant to you, including our reporting on India's vibrant manufacturing sector. 
write to us at feedback at the core.in. Thank you for listening.